You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me from, of all places, Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercraft. Jonathan, uh, how is England now that you're back? It's better now that you're back, right? Uh, it's wet and it's gone back into lockdown. So. But since you got back to Southampton, the Saints have beaten the top of the table, Everton, and yes. they beat Villa, and Villa was, uh, I think, in top three when, when, when Southampton FC beat them. They're playing well. They've got a very good manager, um, and he'll obviously end up being hired by a better club. Because that's what happens in Southampton, but uh, he's a good manager, so I think they'll have a good season this year. Uh, on our last show, we took a field trip to Estonia, and our stop today, as we're going around and kind of looking at different ways that various curling organizations have have solved various problems and 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 built their membership. Today, we're heading to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Yeah. I lived in Edmonton, Ryan. Did you know that? No, I didn't actually. I didn't know you lived there. I lived in Edmonton from 1980 to 82. Was that was Warren Moon with the Eskimos back then? Or was that pre-Warren Moon? I, that must be pre-Warren Moon. When cuz like my mind Warren Moon's like 90s the Vikings, right? After like playing for the Eskimos for 5-6 years. Oh man, no. Warren Moon to me is early 90s Oilers throwing the ball all over the field and then the defense costing the Oilers their first postseason game every single year from 1991 through 1993. Yeah. I don't know if Moon, I mean, I was a kid. I mean, so the, the one player who was definitely there, cause I was mad about him was Wayne Gretzky. Haywood so I was there for Wayne Gretzky. Guys. Have you heard of him? Um, um no, I haven't. <laughs> only, only CFL football players, not, not NHL hockey player. So I was I was there before they got good. Like they were kind of on the rise when the others were on the rise, not the dynasty years. Okay. How old how old were you then? Uh five to seven. Okay. So you don't remember much about Edmonton. I don't remember much, but I do and I'm not sure where it was, but we did go to some kind of facility for swimming that had curling in it. And so the, probably the first time I saw curling live was in Edmonton. In some kind, it's like, a, it's like a very vivid but vague memory. And I would get a blueberry muffin after my swim lessons. And the Aww. curling was on the other side of the lounge. So That's anyway. adorable. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we are we are not talking to Craig McTavish. We are talking to Chris McTavish, and he is the GM of Shamrock Curling Club in the southern part of Edmonton. We're going to talk about kind of some some unique things that they did starting about seven years ago when they were faced with you know the dilemma where they were they were staring down the barrel of closure at uh, at Shamrock Curling Club and 
Chris was part of some changes that they made to a lot of their leagues, particularly on the weekends, to try and reach a younger demographic. And now, as he will talk about, their club is thriving and they have a waiting list and they're doing pretty good just because of uh, some different things that they were able to try because, uh, you know, they really had no other choice. Our guest today is Chris McTavish. He is the general manager of the Eight Sheet Shamrock Curling Club in Edmonton, Alberta. Chris uh, also has a PhD in philosophy and is a professor at Athabasca University. So once again, I am far and away the least educated person on this podcast. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Shamrock Curling. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, My pleasure to be here. Yeah, we've been trying to get you on for a little bit, but you, you've been a busy guy, obviously, which is which is better than the alternative, right? That's right. It's been a busy start to the season, unlike any other start to the season in uh, in past memory. But uh, it's things are smoothing out a bit, which is encouraging to see. That's good. So, just kind of start off by telling us a little bit about you. Tell people, you know, where where are you from originally, and, and what was it like growing up there? Thanks. Yeah, I'm well, I'm originally from Edmonton, uh, born and raised. Uh, I didn't really get into curling that much uh, in my youth. I was more into hockey at the time. Uh, and it wasn't until I, w- I moved to Chicago, where I did my doctorate at Loyola University of Chicago, my doctorate in philosophy. And it was there that I, I became more involved in curling at the Chicago Curling Club. And that was, you know, just a great experience. It's a, it's a small club, four sheet club, but I was able to get into the sport with some friends. And when I came back to Edmonton, I moved into a neighborhood that had a curling club nearby and, and joined the board. And I, I tried to bring some, some ideas and to the, to the curling club in order to make for a more positive experience and maybe help grow the membership. Was there anything in particular about the sport that made you want to keep playing it and then uh, get more involved like you did? I think what I recognized was that it was a, it was an activity that anybody could really do. And it was a social activity that involved. Um, so it was something anybody could do, but it was also something that you can enjoy each other's company afterward, whether it's broom stacking or, or just sitting around um, and enjoying a pop or something like that. And it was, it was that appeal that I, 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 I saw that, you know, I had friends of various uh, abilities and skill levels um, enjoy the sport and more importantly, enjoy the social aspect of it. And it was it were those ideas that I think I really keyed in on to identify that curling was a was a special sport and something I wanted to be involved in. Uh, tell us a little bit about Shamrock Curling Club itself. You know, is, is the, the building that you're in, is it, is it privately or publicly owned? And then does, does, the, does the club lease the building? Tell us a little bit about your setup. Right. It's a good question. Well, we're, we're an older facility. We, we um, were built in 1956. A lot of curling clubs in the Amateria are older facilities that were, were built at around that time. We lease from the city, we're not operated by the city. So the city of Edmonton, we lease the area from the city, uh, which is unlike hockey rinks in, in the Edmonton area. So hockey rinks and hockey arenas in the Edmonton area are owned and operated by the city. So they are taxpayer funded. Uh, curling clubs, uh, for whatever historical reasons, have not been operated by the city. Uh, 
And so it's been left to the society or the not-for-profit that is involved with the club to to operate and ensure that uh, the building is properly maintained and viable. So it's it's um, we're on publicly owned land, but we we own the capital assets and we operate the facility. Is there any? I mean, are there any unique challenges that that presents where you you don't own the land and you're you're kind of leasing the facility? Does that present any challenges to you guys, or, or are there certain certain ways that 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 uh, arrangement kind of frees you guys up to, to do some different things? I think it's a mix. Um, and, and I know that just from talking to curling clubs that are in rural areas outside Edmonton, curling clubs that are, that are owned and operated um, more by the, by the municipality, uh, we do have some freedom, but whenever we want to do something to our facility, there's, there's a lot of paperwork. Uh, we do need to get approvals. Um, and, and that, that can be a hassle. It would be, it would be nice to, to maybe get a little more support from the municipality, largely because we are aging facilities here in Edmonton and we do need updates and we want to keep curling as an affordable social activity. So we don't want to have to always increase our league fees. Like we've been doing for a lot of years now, just to maintain financial viability. Um, but, but by and large, it's a good partnership. And um, we've been uh, we've been successful at least in in the last uh, half dozen to dozen years. How much, just out of curiosity, how much do league fees run uh, in, Ed- in the Edmonton area and at your rank? Yeah, it's a good question. So in at, at the Shamrock for an eight N league. So let's take our men's league for example. It's seventeen forty for a team, and that's a twenty week season. So if you split that four ways, that'd be four hundred and thirty five dollars. A person for the season. Uh, when I break it down, it's roughly around eighteen dollars a night for a participant. Um, in our fun leagues, our, our more social leagues, which are six N leagues, the cost is reduced. It's a le- uh, fourteen forty for a team, which works out to roughly three sixty per player for the season, and that's that's per league. And I know you know there's there's different ways things are done around the world. Uh, I know, for instance, when I was in Chicago or, or out east, it was more common to have a membership fee uh, or a share in the club, and then you pay, uh, or you don't you don't pay specific uh, league fees to to join a particular league. You just have a membership fee. But the the common pattern at curling clubs in in this neck of the woods is to pay per league. And so you're saying, so also it sounds like you're six ends for your more social leagues and eight ends for the more competitive leagues. That's right. Yeah. And so is that, is that, uh, is that like a new development? Cause that's not common in a, in a lot of places I've played. That sounds, uh, kind of be a bit of an innovation. Right. Well, the six end league. So that was something that, uh, we started when I, when I started here at the Shamrock, that was one thing I wanted to key in on because I wanted to, so when, when I, when I started here, when I was on the board, um, before I transitioned into management, we were, we were at about, uh, seven or eight leagues. Uh, we had some nights where we total, um, some nights where we weren't even open. We might have a morning league with four of our eight sheets being used and then an evening league with five of eight. And it was a big facility and expenses were high. So we, we needed to try to attract people to the curling club. And, you know, one idea that we had was, well, what is it? <laughs> it's just very fundamental. 
but uh, what do people like about curling? <laughs> and let's focus on that. And as I mentioned earlier, it was the social aspect. And what we tried to do is not just sell the sport of curling in the sense of just going out and, and playing in a cold surface for an hour and a half or two hours, but the entire experience of being at a curling club, which can include elevated food offerings, uh, elevated bar offerings, uh, a sense of community, a sense of belonging, and to package that all together into an experience that you can enjoy with your friends. Uh, as we know, all of us have busy schedules and it's hard to get out for an evening. And if you are going to dedicate some of your, your social time out, you want to do it with people you enjoy being with. And what we tried to key in on with the six end leagues was it was a shorter period of time out on the ice, which enabled more time for people to enjoy one another's company off the ice. And that's been a formula. It's a very simple formula, but it's been really successful here. Uh, people like it. They don't want to stand in the cold for a very long time. They like curling, but they also, they really like the social aspect. So that's something we've tried to foster and encourage here at the Shamrock. And it, it's been a formula that's worked quite well. So when you brought the ideas for the, the changes to these leagues to the board, like how radical were these ideas you were, you were presenting and, you know, were they, were they, had you heard of other leagues that had been doing that and had success or, you know, tell us about that process of, of getting this all started. Right. Good question. I, I don't know if it was perceived as especially radical. We were, we were in a position where we had to do something or else we were, we were likely going to close. We were in debt to the bank and the, the forecast didn't look strong because our numbers weren't strong. Uh, so we did, we had to do something. And the idea was to, to key in on what it is that makes our sport great. Now, in a sense, we had, it was a perfect storm for us. We had a luxury because we had opening, so we could try something new. It wasn't as though we had a bunch of traditional eight end leagues or that we had a bunch of really traditional curlers who are used to curling a certain way. Uh, we had an opening to attract new people to our sport and, you know, from out of that lens, when we started to look at, well, how do we attract these people? Um, it wasn't just through the curling. It was, hey, you know, we have uh, a good bar selection. Hey, we've got great food. Uh, hey, we have a great community of people here. And so I, I, I don't know if it was an especially radical idea from out of the context we were in, but um, it, uh, it was something that, that certainly worked really well for us. Yeah. I mean, this story has been well documented in Alberta, but we do have a lot of listeners in, in the U.S. and U.K. that may not know about it. What were some of the results? I mean, obviously, the, the demographics that started coming to these leagues looked a lot different than what you saw in a lot of your more traditional leagues. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So what we started to see when we open up these, these social leagues or, or fun leagues or beginner leagues, which were, which were co-ed open, we didn't want to stick to the the rigid traditional format of men's, uh, women's, mixed. Uh, that didn't really, I think, speak to uh, what what we were seeing out in the community of what people want to do. They want to go out with their friends, uh, male or female, and they wanted to go have a good time. Uh, what we saw, we didn't have, I, I mentioned this earlier, we had maybe seven or eight leagues and uh, 
now, although this year is a little bit different, of course, with, with COVID-related considerations, uh, but say last year, uh, we had 19 leagues, and every night of the week, we would run, uh, we're an eight-sheet facility, we'd run two full eight-sheet draws, uh, one after the other, and I'd say we probably have, in the last year, on average, maybe uh, 40, 40, 45 teams on a waiting list trying to get in. So. Oh, wow people who want to get in and what they wanted to get in on are the fun leagues are these co-ed social leagues because they want to go have a good time uh, with their friends and the the leading demographic although it's it's a wide range of, of people the leading demographic i would say would be 30 to 35 years old a lot of younger professionals um who don't just live in the area but there are a lot of people who do who do live in the neighborhood uh but but those tend to be the kind of people who are signing up for our for our social and fun leagues. I mean, it's it's one thing to make these changes, but it's certainly another to get the word out, especially with that demographic that you're talking about, the younger gen, uh, the younger generation. Um, in addition to shaking up the league formats, were there any marketing tactics that especially worked for you guys? We did what we could with social media at the time. So this is going back several years now. It seems like social media has become an even more pervasive force and motivating force in our lives. Uh, but certainly we, we we did little things like update our website to make it a little more accessible. We did some advertising, although when we started out, we didn't have a lot of room in our advertising budget. I, I think what uh, really helped it spread, and it's a, it's it sounds simplistic, but it was word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that people were having positive experiences here and they were bringing their their friends here to hang out because this then became a place where they would want to go to spend their social time and their friends would come and their friends would want to join. And it spread. I mean, it's hard. I don't have any quantitative data as to where everyone found out about the shamrock or stuff like that, but it seemed like word of mouth was a real strong motivating force. So we would do, uh, you know, a couple things we do here, which are a little bit unique, I guess, is we have, we don't have it this year because of COVID related concerns, but we have a mug board where you can have your your beer mug uh it's hanging up on a wall with your name on it and then that's your your mug for the year and it's a small thing but it helps people feel like they you know they belong to a community that that's my place it was a very simple matter of just putting engraving a name on a beer mug uh we started with i just wanted to do it with some friends of mine and so we had 10 up and then more people wanted it and now I think we have, there's about, uh, let's see, 50, 160 mugs up on our wall, tastefully. Oh, wow. And there's also a waiting list to get on the mug board. And so it's, you know, small things like that, you know, make people feel like they belong to something and they do belong to something. They belong to a community here. And that, that has been a a real positive force for good and has, um, I think, encouraged a positive word of mouth in the, in the community. Were there any, you know, for this, for that generation, were there any preconceptions about curling and about curling clubs with that generation that you had to overcome uh, to be successful with these leagues? Uh, and if so, how difficult were those to overcome? And, you know, were, were it thing, was it things like the mug board that accomplished that? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of, one of the things that I was hearing just from friends, and I suppose it was anecdotal, um, but it was, it was that, yeah, curling's fun. It's hard to get into because a lot of the traditional leagues, you start out, you start as a lead or a second, 
um, and you're, um, you know, acclimated to the sport through more experienced players. And there is something to be said about that approach. And there is a, a, a strong history to that in curling. Um, but the, the, the drawback to that particular approach was that people weren't spending their social time necessarily with people that they want to spend their social time with. So it was a hard sport to pierce into if you weren't experienced. It, if you just had to start as a lead and then maybe didn't have as much responsibilities and you're, you're hanging out with, with people you don't really know and maybe they're a little older. Um, so what we tried to do is encourage teams to sign up, um, even if they, they didn't have experience in the sport, to sign up as a team. Now, the challenge with that kind of approach is, well, we need to teach these people how to curl. So we did mm-hmm. learn to curl sessions. Um, we've had the benefit of uh, Kevin Martin, who lives in the area, um, as, as you guys know, out of, uh, out of the Savile. He would come and he would give clinics that would help because we have a ton of new curlers, younger curlers who are, who are looking to get into the sport. Uh, I would run some some strategy sessions, some off-ice stuff where we talked about etiquette and we talked about you know how to call a game. So there is a steep learning curve with that approach when you allow brand new people just to get into curling. There, there does need to be a vehicle to onboard them properly, but it is doable. Um, it's, 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 as we all know, it's a challenging sport, um, but you know, anybody can play it once they're given a little bit of direction. And now in our internet-based era, you can find on YouTube instructional tutorials on, on how to curl. And, and our, our curlers are, are, by and large, the younger curlers that we have, younger demographic, they are tech-savvy, and, and they're finding their way. It's, it's a bumpy learning curve, but they are finding their way. So I, I suppose one, you know, obstacle people were seeing or preconception about curling was it's hard to get into um, because I don't know what I'm doing. And it's cold, you know. <laughs> Here we have a sport <laughs> that takes place during the winter, and we ask people to come into our building and go do something that's cold. Um, and that's a hard sell. So that's why I, we tried to, to uh, pitch it at the level, well, it's not just the curling part. It's also the food. It's also the drink. It's also the camaraderie and belonging to a community. And I think packaging it as that larger perspective rather than just the part about curling has been appealing and, and a successful formula for us. How, how much demand is there for the, the kind of curling education part for people after, uh, after they take up the sport? Because I think, think a lot of clubs, they might do like an open house. Maybe people come throw a few stones, but it's, you know, going to get the basics down. But then often they're just kind of thrown into a league and there's not much um, development yep. after that. So it sounds like you guys do a little bit more to, to make sure people stick around. It's, that's a great question, John. And then, um, uh, I wish I could do more. I mean, my, my time gets stretched pretty thin. Uh, as far as the demand, uh, the demand is high because because people love the sport and they they want to get better. You know, they're they're having fun. It's a it it's it's no one expects to be going to the Briar or the Scotties or anything like that. Uh, but they do want to get better and they see their peers getting better. And unfortunately, in the Edmonton area, we we have a number of of great curling instructors. Uh, so the Seville Center, which is not too far from where we're located, has 
as as you guys are likely familiar, uh, it's a tremendous suite of uh, of of experienced professional curlers. And so, if curlers want to elevate their game, there's a number of curlers there on standby who are who are willing to uh, provide lessons. And so, it's it's a great opportunity that curlers in our area have because here in Edmonton, we do we do have a lot of great curlers. Uh, so the demand is high. I try to meet it as best as I can. The other problem we have is just finding open ice time, given that our leaks are are often full. So it's hard for me to even find open ice time uh, to give a clinic, let alone for our curlers to find practice ice time. Is there something about the part of Edmonton that you're in that might have helped you have success with the non-traditional things that 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 you were trying, um, you know, what are the demographics around your facility? And then do, do those demographics match, um, what you're seeing in your leagues? Yeah. Well, as, as you guys may or may not know, or maybe you're listening, there's a lot of curling clubs in the Edmonton area. So we have 12 Mm -hmm. curling clubs here. Um, and, uh, where we're situated, we're not, we're not right by the university. There's, uh, a couple other curling clubs that are close to the University of Alberta, uh, but we do have a, a younger demographic in our in our particular community. Um, one thing we tried to do to engage the, our surrounding neighborhood, which was successful, was we had a, a our building's old, as I mentioned, so we had an aging exterior, and there was a, a wall that needed painting and we decided instead of just painting it white again or, or green again uh, to make a community mural and so what I did I engaged a local artist to come up with a design and what he did Jason Blower uh, what Jason did is he he was very generous with his time and and he offered and he he painted the outline of the mural and then we asked people in the neighborhood and our curling community more generally to come by for in the day and we would hand you a paintbrush and a number and, and here over here you paint red, over here you paint green, over here you paint this. And it was the kind of thing that allowed uh, people in our neighborhood to see that we were making improvements, but also for people in the neighborhood and our curling community to feel as though they're part of the building. Cause now when you pull up or walk by the building, you can point to the point on the wall where, hey, I painted that. And that was just part of, of growing our brand in a positive way in the neighborhood and also to help foster this sense of community and camaraderie at our facility. Are there any, um, just all, like, what other like social activities? You mentioned a lot of it's about promoting kind of off-ice camaraderie. So do you, do you do other activities? Do you have fun bond spiels throughout the year? Do you have any kind of things going on in the, cl- the club lounge after games or all games are going on to, to make the place more inviting? Yeah, we try to. One, one successful format that we've used in previous years is a doubles and dinner. So it be a two-person curling, doubles curling. It's more like a, a, a couple's night out. And then it followed by a, a roast dinner. So there'd be, you'd start in the afternoon and then in the evening, uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, an excellent group in here that, that provides our food services. Drift Food Truck would provide a roast dinner, and it makes for a, a, a just a great night out. Uh, it's, it's relaxed. It's recreational. You do a little doubles curling, and then you go enjoy a, a nice meal. And so that's outside, I guess, the normal parameters of 
in that event, uh, we to do it in an evening, we we have 32 teams, uh, just so we'd have 16 on, 16 off, 16 on, 16 off. And in previous years, they they just always sell out. Um, uh, this year, we're we are running it in a modified format. Um, um, because obviously with COVID-related concerns, things are a little bit different. Um, but something like doubles and dinner has been successful. Some things we've had up in, in the bar, we have darts, we have shuffleboard, we have foosball, we've got uh, flat screen TVs, we've got board games, uh, those kinds of things to help encourage people to to want to stay a, as they do. Um, uh, this year, because of COVID-related concerns, uh, none of those things are available, uh, but... Uh, those are the, you know, just little things like that, um, help people want to stay, stay a little bit longer. And, and those, those have been successful. When you first started with the social league formats, were you, you know, adding in, you know, discounts on, on food after the game or discounts on, on drinks after the game to try and encourage everyone to, to stick around afterwards? I think in, in, what I did is I, I handed out coupons for free pitchers of beer. <laughs> and that, that was a big selling point. Um, I've, as my, as many of my fun league curlers who've been here for since then have reminded me, I don't seem to be doing that much anymore. Um, I, I did do that because I, because nobody was using the bar. And so I, I started just handing out these coupons. Um, I, I don't hand those out as much anymore. Um, but um, uh, that, that's, that was one way to get people up there is, is the attraction of, oh, well, you know, a discounted drink. Uh, let's go check it out. And a lot, of pe- a lot of our people, when they use our lounge, they, they're, you know, surprised. Like, oh, this is actually, it's really nice. Um, we, we elevated it. We got new tables and chairs. Uh, we did a, um, you know, painting. We put some stone around certain columns just to upgrade and, and elevate its look. Uh, and uh, we introduced more tap lines, brought in craft beer. So we are, all of our tap lines are all local craft beer. Uh, we don't, um, you know, which is, I suppose, a little bit unusual for, for curling clubs. I think the, the thought typically is a curling club will have more traditional beers. Like, uh, well, I guess you guys are in the States, so maybe like uh, Budweiser or... Mm-hmm. Light. here would be maybe Canadian or Labatt's um, but we, we try to emphasize local and craft beer and that's those are our biggest sellers by far and we've been able to forge strong partnerships with local craft brewers here and they like to throw swag our way and we like to uh, turn it around and give it to our curlers in, in through our through our fun spiels and events and there's there's a really strong strong partnership that way Maybe you should make it uh, like Disney World and w- walk out there on the ice sheet. And anytime someone makes a double or draws to the forefoot against a couple, give them a coupon for a for a free pitcher. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know a, a friend of mine who runs a bowling alley in Edmonton. Every now and then, he has this thing, is which is a great idea. I figure out how to integrate in a curling club, but a buzzer goes, and it's called "Beat the Boss," and. He it's a random selected lane and he gets one throw and one throw against the boss. And if you beat the boss on that throw, then you get a beer. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm not sure how to do it at the curling club exactly without interrupting the games too much, but uh, 
those those are fun novel things and and people who are looking for a good social night out those are those are things they they like to like to see so maybe we should talk a little bit about covid so how is covid uh affecting this season what have been the biggest challenges uh in terms of running your leagues this year yeah well, let me tell you it has been quite a challenge this is this has been the most difficult um startup i've seen since i've been here it's been we've it's a roller coaster been working on this since the spring um trying to figure out whether it, it was viable to open whether it was safe to open um, we had registration levels i'd say in in early september we we're at 30 percent return um and under those conditions it would not have been viable to open so we we put we put a pretty robust plan together and uh, right now we're at, we're at 90% of where we were last year, which is, which is encouraging as far as numbers and um, as far as, as trying to remain financially viable. We're just from a, a financial standpoint alone, we're, we're, we're still likely to lose some money, just not as much as we were going to. We're seeing significant drops in other revenue sources, such as ICE rentals. At this point in time, I, I haven't even had an inquiry for an ICE rental. A uh, number of our spiels are, are, have been canceled. So we have, we have 32 team spiels. The Edmonton Sports Social Club runs a spiel here. Uh, they rent the facility for the day and then they, they then all of them use the bar and, and, and we're, we're not running those events this year. And so those are big financial hits for us. So even though we're at 90% of our, our league capacity, we're, we're still likely looking at a loss. We're not sure how the, how the lounge returns will, will go this season. Um, as, as far as the safety conditions that we've put in place, uh, the extensive safety conditions we've put in place, our lounge is now at 50% capacity. So already we're anticipating losses there. Um, some of the, 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 the bigger conditions, um, are, uh, well, we have staggered start times because we are an eight sheet facility and we have certain nights of the week that are still eight sheets followed by eight sheets. And that's a lot of people And these, these buildings, these older buildings, they weren't set up for a lot of spacing in our lobbies. So many people who've been to curling clubs likely know that the, the lobbies are, can be tight areas. We, we removed a lot of tables and chairs to create space and we have the staggered start times and we have people coming at certain times and that's helped to mitigate against the congestion. Uh, we've increased communication. We've increased sanitization. As you guys know, there's here in Canada, at least we have rule changes to the sport of curling, the single sweeper rule, uh, which, which is working to maintain safe distancing on the ice. Uh, one of the, one of the drawbacks, I don't know if you guys have been, been watching much single sweeper curling is there's more standing around. There's not as much activity for our curlers. And I, I think that's detracting from the experience a bit. So I'm, I'm trying to find out ways to keep our curlers engaged, given these new rules that we have in order to maintain safe distancing. But probably the hottest button topic that we've faced, uh, not just at our club, but within the, the Edmonton area is the use of masks on ice. Well, we here at the Shamrock started with what which would be considered a very cautious approach uh, a stronger approach for mask use than other curling clubs in the Edmonton area where we were requiring masks unless you needed to remove it for sweeping or to regain a comfortable rate of breathing. Um, 
uh, we're seeing about uh, 95% compliance on use of masks on the ice. I recently sent out a survey to our curlers to just ask, you know, what their experience has been like. And around 90% of them say that they agree with it. We've had uh, a spike in cases here in the Edmonton area that has has people concerned. So we're we're trying to do what's best for our curlers so that A, they have a positive experience, but B, that they have a healthy and safe experience here. And it, it's been it's been challenging as a curling club manager because I'm not a healthcare expert. Uh, as a curling club manager, to try to do what's best for our curlers in the face of uncertainty. I mean, we don't we don't know really how this virus is going to react in arena areas. I, I had the fortune. I listened to your guys' podcast a couple episodes ago where you had um, Dr. Paul Luthion, the microbiologist, who who did the study. Uh, from what was it, the U.S. Nationals or yeah, US yeah, the U.S. Nationals, the uh, U.S. Yeah, Club Nationals, yeah, Club Nationals, yeah. Um, and that was, you know, really interesting and fascinating stuff. Uh, but what we're trying to do here is do everything we can to mitigate against the spread and be responsive and adaptive as we get results and data in. So far, you know, we're about a month in. Um, I have not been alerted to any cases. And like I said, our curlers have been compliant. A lot of them are happy just to get out of the house and stay active. And a lot of people have been thankful that we have such a rigorous set of uh, expectations, rules, and protocols this year in order to ensure people's safety. So it's, it, it's, it's been going well so far. Uh, what, what curling will be like in the next several months? Um, I, I guess we don't know. It's, it's hard to forecast. Uh, but as of right now, it, it's been positive. It's been smooth, and um, and I'm 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 hoping to keep up with these measures in order to ensure our curlers' safety. What have your protocols been when you have a situation where there isn't mass compliance? And have you gotten any guidance on what the messaging needs to be on that from either the Alberta Association or from Curling Canada? Yeah, so with with mass compliance, so right now in in our region in uh, with um, HS, uh, they they are recommending against mask use during in, what they call intense physical activity, and so some curling clubs have interpreted that to mean that masks are not required during curling, uh, and. And it, it's been difficult because there isn't a consensus on this. Uh, my own view is with the ru- new rules that are in place um, at the club level, at least, where there's only one sweeper and the, the skips aren't doing any sweeping, for any given shot, there might be one person who could be said to be engaged in intense physical activity out of eight people uh, that's curling. And so my view has been that the default attitude out on the ice should be to keep your mask on. And, and there may be situations, maybe you need to replace a wet mask, for instance. There may be situations where you can remove your mask, but when you remove your mask, uh, you should ensure safe distancing and you should refrain from shouting. Uh, that's been my, my view. Um, uh, the curling clubs in the Edmonton area, we met and we came out with a set of recommendations that go somewhat beyond what AHS is requesting or, or, or requiring or outlining, 
where we are strongly requesting that our curlers wear masks um, on the ice. Uh, the the biggest obstacle, because a lot of people, I think, want to be compliant. The biggest obstacle, you guys have probably heard this or seen it or experienced it, is glasses fogging up and people who who uh, are not able to use contact lenses. And they I, I've had them come in my office and they say, I want to wear a mask, Chris, but I can't see. And those have been really the most challenging cases. Um what do we do for these curlers who want to curl, want to wear a mask, but they can't see very well because their glasses keep fogging up? And I don't know if you guys have come up with a, or have heard of a solution to, to um, anti-fog in cold areas for curling, but I would be, I would be all ears to hear it because I've had curlers try just about everything they can find on the internet and with very little success. So I, I have not curled in glasses during, um, during COVID-19, but I am a glasses wearer. Uh, and I also live in a location where the humidity can be about 3000%. Yeah. Um, and what I found in, I, I found a type of mask that has the, um, the little piece of metal that goes under the nose. And if yeah. I tuck the, if I tuck the piece of metal inside my glasses, I don't have fog, regardless of how hard I'm breathing out of my nose or out of my mouth. I have been able to avoid fog if I wear the type of mask that I have on hand that has the little metal piece and have it tucked inside the glasses. That's 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 the that's really the only thing that has helped me. Well, that's that's really encouraging to hear. I know some people. Um, uh, once they get out into the ice area, the variable of, of the ice and the, the cold weather has made it more difficult to, to avoid the fogging. Um, some people have, have taped their mask to the upper part of their cheek in order to help minimize the, the breathing that goes up into the mask. And, and they're having varying levels of success with that. Um, uh, but that's been the, the, the biggest challenge with respect to mask wear on the ice. There is a small and vocal minority of curlers uh, who, who just don't believe in masks at all. And I mean, we see that on Twitter and, and in the social environment more generally. And, and so they're, they also don't like to wear masks. But by and large, people want to wear masks uh, because the, the attitude I've tried to foster here is let's look out for one another. And so your mask isn't, isn't just for you, it's, it's for the others. And I wear my mask for you. You wear your mask for me. We're a community. Um, let's let's look out for one another and do what's best for one another and enjoy the sport of curling. You talked about how because of COVID, you know, you're you're taking a hit in terms of bar and restaurant receipts. What what kind of do you think is a good mix for your club on revenue coming from leagues, bar? Um, restaurant and then corporate rentals. Like what's a good mix for you guys? And are you going to look at um, maybe reevaluating what that mix needs to look like going forward in a post COVID world? Yeah, well, we feel, uh, I mean, we still feel like the product that we have is strong. Um, of, uh, of the, of the, we had about, I'd say 30% of our teams choose not to return this year. 
Um, but then we had a lot of teams on the waiting list who, who did come in, and that's how we got to that 90% threshold. Um, I, I think in a non, non-COVID year, I, I think the product that we offer here is a good product. I think Turling does offer a great product. Uh, there's just mitigating challenges at this time. For us, the mix generally is we're, we're solid with league play every night of the week with full draws. And then on the weekend, uh, we have events, whether they're outside corporate events or internally run fun spiels. Uh, we get some corporate events weekday afternoons. Uh, we get a lot of requests for corporate events in a typical year, uh, but we because we're full in our leagues, we, we don't have, have room for them. I, I don't think, you know, looking forward to say, you know, 2021 or 2022, uh, we don't know how long this is going to last. I, I think once we get through the through this pandemic pandemic successfully, um, our, our product will be will be strong to return to the levels that we were seeing previously. Um, but part of that is also going to be associated with with just our, our curling brand and how we respond to COVID this winter um, and the reputation that curling clubs more generally receive insofar as how they respond. We, you know, we're not sure what to expect. We're, I, I think it would be, it would be naive to think that we're not gonna see cases at our curling clubs, given that we'll have thousands of people come through our door um, and that COVID can be carried asymptomatically, it will come to our curling club. It's just whether our mitigating measures are robust enough to minimize any possible spread. And so my focus has been on what can we do to help minimize the spread? What is the best, what is the most reasonable thing we can do to minimize spread? And I'm, I'm hoping other curling clubs are, are focused in that way as well. Uh, because what we certainly don't want to be seeing is that there's there's COVID-related outbreaks at curling clubs, you know, across North America, and because that would hurt our brand, and 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 so we we want to make sure that our our regulations and protocols are robust enough to keep our curlers safe, and we're 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 doing the the best that we can um, based on the data that we have in order to ensure that. Well, what, what are you guys hearing out there? Um, I mean, what are what are curling, I, as far as on-ice mask use, it seems like it's different in different regions. I know, for instance, in Nova Scotia, I think they're back to two-person curling because they have, I think they had zero no, new cases recently. I mean, here in Edmonton, uh, we, we keep seeing spikes. In Ontario, I see everyone's wearing a mask while curling. It seems to be in, in different regions. I'm just curious what, you, know, you guys are, you know, are tapped into the curling community. Uh, uh, you know, more widely and globally. Uh, What kind of things are are you guys hearing? So in England, uh, it's a lot more centralized, the government than than North America. And so we're really like public health, like basically English curling had to submit a document to public health England and then public health England came back and basically, you know, went through it. And they said, these are basically the rules for curling. So for us, we're under something called the rule of six, which means you can't have more than six people playing a sport at the same time. So basically we're locked into three aside. Uh, so that's what we're going to do right now. And it's going to be wearing masks, um, wearing masks. Uh, I think the other protocols are basically, there's no socializing at the rink. You basically show up in your gear, um, 
you know, without you put your shoes on and you go play. And it, there's a lot of stuff around touch and kind of uh, sanitizing the facility as well. That I'm sure you're you're familiar with that part too. But for us, it's basically three aside curling for for the foreseeable future. I think in Scotland, there's a bit more because it's kind of like the provincial governments in Canada, right? There's a bit of different interpretation. So there in Scotland, yeah. I think they're still at four, but three, like one sweeper rule, masks mandatory. And also like they're the big thing they seem to be clacking down on here is the lounge activity. So right. like, I'm going to go curling if, if the conditions hold, <laughs> maybe going back into a lockdown again, but if, if the conditions hold in 10 days, I'm going to be going, we're doing like a little weekend bond spiel at our rink and it's going to be kind of a trial i think for a lot of this because we haven't opened yet the rink delayed its start by a month and uh i'll see how it goes i'm a little i think the playing will be fine but uh like the socialization has gone right and so you know it'll just be drive in um <laughs> play i guess and then leave it i'm not sure what we'll do maybe we'll if it's a nice day maybe we can stand outside a little bit and chat at a distance or it may just be go play go for, go for somewhere to wait for your next game and come back kind of thing. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, what a weird and wild world. Um, yeah. And to tie it back to some of the things I, I mentioned earlier, part of what's helped make the Shamrock successful is tying the entire experience, not just the curling, but the social experience. And we now, we shouldn't be doing that. Right. So it's, it's, it's a harder sell. So a lot of our curlers who are, who are used to that, um, now we're coming to the curling club, you know, just for the curling and, um, and, and they're enjoying that, but it, it's, it's obviously, it's, it's a challenge for curling clubs to maintain a positive experience for our curlers. If, if there isn't that social dynamic, which I, in a lot of ways see as essential, maybe not necessary, but essential for a, for a positive experience. Ryan, if I, if I may ask what you're in Virginia, have, has your curling club opened up yet and what conditions do they have there? We have not. So we're we one, we curl on hockey ice. So we're kind of also at the mercy of whether or not our rink is gonna open. Um the other thing is you know, we're we're relatively small. We probably have, you know, between thirty and forty curlers depending on the season. So if you haven't we've had enough that um that have said that they're not comfortable playing that right as of right now kind of it's you know see you after a vaccine basically uh oh, but really? i mean yeah. Yeah, but but it's completely different based on where you are in the u.s what um you know what the trends are for cases in your location you know it, it, it's completely all over the board on what uh, on what clubs are doing, and I know that most clubs are trying to be as cautious as your club is. But it it really varies from club to club here in the U.S. I think from what I've seen. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're trying to be as as cautious as we can. Like I said earlier, given that it is uncertain, um, this this virus uh, affected us here in North America right at the end of our curling season. <laughs> so we, we shut down a couple weeks early, but we, you know, we, we don't know what, what, how it's going to react in curling clubs. So in the face of that uncertainty, I think a cautious approach is, is the prudent approach. And if there's data to support liberalizing from a cautious approach, then maybe we can look at that. But, you know, I, I want our curlers to, to be safe. 
not just feel safe, but be safe and, and have a positive experience. So, so that's been our approach here. And, and um, it's, it's been the approach to curling clubs here in the Edmonton area more generally. And so I'm, I'm for the, for the sake of the brand of curling, I, I hope that that trend continues. The one, the one thing I will say, cause I'm on the board of our club um, is everything we offer so far is sold out right away. <laughs> like, like yeah. there's definitely pent up demand. I'm not sure if you've seen that, that even, even with like the reduced socializing, I think people have been so isolated in other ways these last eight months that just the, just the chance to see people a little bit is still, still appealing. Yeah, no, you're right, John. And I, like I said, we're at 90% of our last year. So people are still coming out and enjoying curling. I, I, I like to joke, everything's about 70 to 80% as much fun as it used to be. Right. So there's a lot of trade-offs not everything's as good as it was. Um, so, you know, we're just, we're just, I guess, used to certain things being a little bit different, but, you know, 70 to 80% as good as it was is better than 0%. So um, people are, are, are still signing up for events and are still looking forward to getting out of their house. There's a lot of people there, you know, they're working from home and, and they're, they're in their homes and, and I like to think it, it's, it can't be healthy just to stay in your home all winter. I mean, we've got really cold winters up here in Edmonton, as you guys can probably imagine. Um, and people need to get out of their house and they need to do something. And so what we're trying to do from a curling perspective is to provide a safe uh, environment for people to stay active and see other people, albeit under limited and modified conditions. They're nevertheless getting out of their house. They're getting exercise and they're engaging with people. And, um, and that, that makes me feel good because I feel like in a sense, we're doing, we're doing a social good in that capacity that we're improving the lives of people, even in this, in this very challenging and difficult time. So, so that's something that, uh, that I find encouraging and, uh, helps, helps to keep me going despite all the, all the challenges and hiccups and, and obstacles we're facing right now. Yeah, you guys have built the reputation as the fun curling club. Is that going to be kind of one of your top challenges as we move into 2021 and 2022 is maintaining, you know, maintaining that culture that you guys have built up the last few years? Yeah, I I think I think we'll, you know, it depends on on what the virus I guess decides to do. Um, but if, if we can get it under social control, uh, I think our brand is strong and the, the product is strong. So we've been doing these social leagues for over a half dozen years now for, for quite some time. And the curlers that are in those leagues, they've, they've grown with the leagues. So we don't, we don't get a lot of turnover in those leagues to be, to be quite honest. They're, it's usually a 95% return rate. So, um, I, I think we'll, we will be able to maintain that that brand and that community and that atmosphere. Um, but, you know, I, I, as we all know, predictions right now are, are difficult to make. Um, who knows what next week will bring. Uh, so uh, let alone next, next curling season, but uh, we, we feel really good about, about the product that we offer and it, it's been successful for, for a number of years and, and we think it will continue to be successful. And what, what are some of the things you guys are doing to try and ensure that that success will last? Are you continuing to, to get creative with, with your leagues and with programs that you have, or are you just mainly trying to maintain at this point? And then 
on top of that, you know, it's been kind of, you know, this, this aspect has been kind of at, at critical mass this year, but do you guys have any programs in place to, to make your club more diverse and inclusive? Right. No, it's a good question. I, I would, I'd say we are, you know, not, we are maintaining cause we do have a successful formula, but we're also open to new creative ideas. And one thing I strive to do is be responsive, responsive to our membership. Uh, you know, whether it's through surveys or just walking out in the lobby when our car is getting ready, just to get a sense of the atmosphere and the culture and, and figure out what people are looking for and respond accordingly. Uh, as far as growing the sport, um, we've, we have reached out. So we reached out uh, every year, although, although this year is different. Uh, I've reached out to the um, uh, Edmonton Immigrant Association, Newcomers to Canada um, Association. And, and we do a learn to curl for them. Um, and we have hot chocolate and, and, and stuff like that. And we will get uh, a wide variety of, of people who, who not only had never heard of curling, had never even stepped on ice. And, and that's something, you know, we've been, we've been, I've been trying to, to do more of, um, as you guys know, curling tends to be a pretty white sport. <laughs> uh, it has that reputation, which is unfortunate. So we're, we're trying to be more inclusive. Uh, the thing is we don't have a lot of room in our curling clubs in our leagues here and under a normal year. So I, I don't have opportunities to bring a lot of new people in. Um, but I think, you know, curling in general in the Edmonton area and, and uh, us curling club managers, in the Edmonton area, we meet periodically and we're committed. We, I think we, our studies show that 9% of Edmontonians curl. Uh, we want to try and bring 15%. So uh, we're, we're trying to work collaboratively and collectively and to guide curlers to where there are openings and where they might be more suitable. So we have a reputation for being more of a recreational curling club. If someone wants to become more competitive, you know, I, I suggest, hey, why don't you try a league at the Savile? Because <laughs> there's some really great curlers there, world-class curlers. Um, and they have, they have programming that's geared towards something that's a little bit more competitive. So we have that luxury in the Edmonton area where there are different clubs that sort of specialize in, in different kinds of things. Um, but we're, I think we do have a reputation for, being, for emphasizing the recreational element. And uh, that brand has been working, working for us. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just let everybody know where they can go learn more about Shamrock Curling? You know, tell us about you know under a normal year the kind of bond spiels that you guys have at your facility, and then also tell us a little bit about the podcast that you do. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad we get a plug in for that. Uh, yeah, well, they can learn more about the Shamrock Curling Club at www.shamrockcurling.ca. Uh, we also have Facebook, uh, Insta, and Twitter accounts. You can learn a little bit more about us that way. We do run a number of, of bond spiels throughout the year under normal circumstances. Uh, this year, I, I've got a doubles and dinner event uh, lined up, but that's the only event we have outside of regular league play. Um, but in a traditional year that we do have uh, a lot of opportunities for a fun uh community-based recreational curling program. And so if people are interested in that kind of thing, please don't hesitate to check us out. And then as for my podcast, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I also have a philosophy and film podcast 
And tonight we're doing The Shining with, with Halloween approaching, uh, where we talk, like to talk about philosophy and movies. So if that's the kind of thing that interests you, uh, please check us out. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to plug that. What's the, uh, what's the name of it? It's actually it's called Philosophy in Film. So pretty straightforward. We debated a long time whether to call it philosophy of film or philosophy in film. So that's how you know there's these they're philosophers working <laughs> on it. And we were we wanted to get that just right. <laughs> we went with philosophy in film. All right, Chris, thank you so much and uh, good luck to you guys going forward. Thanks for having me, guys, and keep up the great work. It's it's great to see curling podcast out there and you guys. Um, doing really great work. So thanks for having me on and and keep up the good work. Jonathan, what was the most interesting thing to you out of all of that? I liked the beer mug ball. Yeah, me too. That's like, did you ever, have you ever been to a flying saucer? Uh, No. Oh, flying saucer is a, it is a, um, a chain of bars in the U S and, you know, wall of taps and you've got, you can, you can, if you drink a certain number of beers, you can have your own mug on, on the wall at the flying saucer. And I've never, I lived in Dallas for like 10 months and there was a flying saucer close to where I lived. It was great. It's a, it's a good touch, right? Cause it, it gives you something that makes you want to stick around the lounge after the game and make it kind of feel like your place. So that's a good idea. I also liked the six ends for their mm-hmm. their recreational leagues. I thought that was um, pretty innovative. I, I, th- I think one thing one thing that happens in a lot of clubs, and I think Chris was kind of hinting at this a bit, is that a lot of the traditional members like things in a very certain way, and they don't realize that that and it's kind of like this is the way we've always done it, so that's why we should do it that way. And sometimes, you know, changing the rules, the format. Uh, trying things slightly differently might make it more approachable for people who are just getting into it. Maybe they don't want to spend two hours on the ice, but a 90 minute game is fun or an hour game might be fun. Um, so I, th- I thought that was pretty innovative too. And it seemed to have a l- help a little bit with the uptake as well. Yeah. I also liked how they, they made an effort to try and work in some development for their, for their newer curlers. It wasn't just throw you on the ice in the only way, obviously, like he said, there's some issue with getting practice time at his club just because of how full it is, but, you know, trying to get creative in ways that you can work development, um, in for the younger curlers. And I think that, you know, that's something that, um, the arena club that I'm in tried recently, we had a, it was more of a developmental league and it was for more for newer curlers where we spent the first 30 minutes, um, was kind of practice or learning a new, uh, learning, you know, focusing on one new skill every week. And then we would play a four end game. We did that for about the first half of the league. And then the second half of the league, um, was just regular, regular curling, but, um, but the first half of the season was really spent on helping the newcomers develop some, develop their skills. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's actually another area that curling kind of underserves its community, uh, a lot is not really having coaching built into the rink or curling club structure, right? Like if you join a tennis club or you join a golf club, those facilities all have club pros on premise and they're not there to coach the elite players. They're there to 
to coach kind of the novice and developing members, your once a week people who, who want a little bit of help. And there's, they're just, I mean, some clubs have this, but I think it's pretty rare. And I think it's a little bit um, undervalued. And I think that it actually helps a fair bit for retention, those places that do it. Um, because, you know, how often have you gone out, played, missed the same the shot the same way four or five times in a row and really had no idea uh, why <laughs> and probably gotten frustrated. And there, there often isn't anyone at the club who can maybe just pull you aside for 20, 30 minutes, work with you and kind of figure out what the flaws and, and give you a few coaching tips for that. And I think that's a one way that the club certainly could by developing a pro program or by developing some people with some a bit more advanced coaching and delivery technique might be able to, to help uh, improve the experience for their members. Yeah. And uh, get creative. You know, if you're an arena club or you're a club that doesn't have a lot of, of ice time, maybe work it in beforehand, have 15 to 20 minutes off of, you know, off ice instruction where, you know, a different member of the club talks about, um, you know, talks for 15 to 20 minutes about a certain topic uh, while you're prepping the ice, you know, utilize, utilize your time. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I think, I think it's the thing that's, I mean, the bigger message here, I think, was the attitude of what can we do to kind of figure out how to turn things around? How can we make this, you know, product? And I think that's the other thing that some kind of traditionalists might chafe at is kind of calling curling a product. But ultimately, even if you're mm-hmm. a non, non-profit club, right, you still have to sell curling memberships and league memberships, right? And so thinking about it that way, I think really changes perhaps how clubs and organizations approach the game is how, how can you make this more appealing to people? And sometimes it means playing with the format a bit. Sometimes it, I think it makes involves making the facility more welcoming. Um, we've talked a lot about that in terms of from a diversity perspective, but just also more welcoming for new curlers. So they feel welcome and want to kind of stick, stick around when they try it out. So I think all of those are kind of pretty innovative ideas. Yeah, you can tell Chris really has a marketing mind, and that's probably one of the things that has really helped out uh, his club. Jonathan, before we get out of here, we did talk a little bit at the end there about COVID-19, and we did get an email. Uh, Kate from the Kelowna Curling Club emailed us to let us know, um, really liked our show on COVID-19. However, she did have uh, one small correction for us. The the app that we download, it's not really a contract tr- contact tracing app. It's more of an alerting app. Contact tracing is done by trained professionals and they interview people to establish um, whether or not you've been in close contact with someone who has had uh, COVID-19, whereas the the alert app, you know, that's based off of um, your Bluetooth uh, exchanging tokens with other phones around you to determine if you have had uh, if you had had close contact with someone who uh, who uh, reported a uh, positive test. So a little bit of a difference there, but uh, it's more of an alerting app than a contact tracing app. Okay, that's good to know. That's you learn something new every day. So that's thanks for letting us know about that, Kate. Yeah, and she's correct. Like even you know here in Virginia, we hired a bunch of contact tracers and again they have to go through a lot of training and they're going through um you know the 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 contacts that people who have tested positive provide to go back and and see um what kind of exposure uh their contacts have had with that person so yeah a little bit of a difference there but uh, a key but yeah key differences there all right jonathan um 
We will talk to everybody here again soon. We're going to continue doing interviews like these that kind of focus on, on one particular uh, organization and the challenges that they've faced and the way that they've risen up to, to face those challenges. I think it's something that you know every club, especially the ones that maybe aren't curling right now, uh, now's a great time to take a look uh, in the mirror and see, okay, what changes can we make? Are we doing everything that we can to uh, increase the number of curlers that we have coming in to uh, make the experience better for them? You know, sports across the across the spectrum, not just curling, but especially curling clubs. Like now is the time to kind of make the changes that you need to, to improve yourselves. Yeah. And so if there's anyone listening out here from a club anywhere in the world, especially if they're not from a place that we haven't covered so far, uh, we'd love you to get in touch with us. We'd be happy to sit down and do an interview, especially if you have some interesting stories about, uh, you know, the challenges you face in terms of recruiting people, interesting ways that your leagues are set up or anything that the rest of the curling community might benefit from hearing your story from. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.